You're listening to the Telltale Channel. If you like what I do and you want to see me continue to do it, don't forget to check out my Patreon. And take a look at my other YouTube channels too. You can find some ad-free, uncensored, complete versions of my videos on my website, owenmorgan.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for my email list to get early access to everything I release. All links are in the description. In this podcast, we're going to talk about why Palestine seems to hate Israel so much. Mike Lindell is broke. He's not digging his way out of this one. His lawyers dropped him because he didn't have the money to continue paying him. Who could have seen this coming? Dude has always been so responsible with this money. And we will immediately stop all of the pillaging and theft. Very simply, if you rob a store, you can fully expect to be shot as you are leaving that store. Shot. This is Donald Trump announcing his new policy, apparently, for what happens when somebody steals a candy bar from a store. This is an interesting clinic in how propaganda works. Donald Trump tells a story about some black teenagers coming in with guns in a store and taking a whole bunch of stuff and just walking right out the store with it because cops can't do anything. They're too afraid and they just have to stand there and take it. And he's so sick of seeing that type of scenario play out. In reality, that doesn't play out. That's a fabricated problem that does not exist. People are not walking into stores, picking stuff up off of racks and walking out with it en masse and knowing the cops won't do anything about it. But he takes that scenario and he, he endorses a law that would make it so that you can shoot somebody if they steal something from a store. But conveniently... That also applies to people who take candy bars. And suddenly we live in a heavily armed state where nobody really knows if they're going to be shot in the street. And we kind of already live there right now, don't we? Ron DeSantis did the same exact thing with the don't say gay bill in Florida. He started out by making it so you can't say anything about your gender or your... Your, if you're gay, your husband, or anything like that, I, I think. I don't remember what the Don't Say Gay Bill was all about. And he just did that for, like, elementary schools, right? And it was super controversial. And then everything calmed down. Everybody forgot. And then he expanded it up to 18-year-olds in high school. You can't talk about a whole bunch of stuff to basic high schoolers that suddenly changes the way sex ed is taught and everything. That was the plan. You start with a little thing that everybody can agree with and you expand it out when no one is paying attention. That was the idea behind what Donald Trump is doing here, really. And now the crowd is going to sit here and cheer for him while he, you know, sharply inhales. I'm going to turn it down. Listen to this. They're going to cheer for him. He's going to sharply inhale. Shake his head, he's so angry. It's just, it, it's painfully stupid and transparent. Like, how can people not see what he's doing here? And everything will immediately stop. You won't have any more of that. And you know our law enforcement is great, but they're not allowed to do anything. They're okay, so theft will stop when you... Make it so that you can be shot if you take a candy bar? That's not going to happen. You think Islam succeeded with that? You cut your hand off if you steal something? That's what he's trying to do right now. 
He's trying to make extreme, ridiculous, insane penalties for really mundane, basic things. And to my knowledge, I don't know that there's any evidence that higher consequences for something changes the rate at which it happens. Looks like I was right. Apparently, crime doesn't change. Crime rates don't change based on penalties. Told to stand by, stand back, don't touch, don't touch. The police are told to do that? I seem to remember him telling his secret police to do that, uh, the Proud Boys, his brown shirts. Remember that? Back, don't touch. Don't touch. Mm, don't touch the thieves? They watch hundreds of kids walk out with television sets. Yeah, cops shouldn't be touching kids. What are we talking about? Are you encouraging people to touch kids? What's wrong with you, Donald? Kind of thing I'd expect from Donald, right? They watch hundreds of kids walk out with television sets and... If they do anything, they lose their family, they lose their house. That's, in, that's absolutely ridiculous. It's completely made up. Cops aren't usually sitting around at a Walmart. I guess if they are, they can physically restrain somebody to prevent them from walking out. But you don't even need to. Just catch them on camera, look them up in a database, find out who they are, and then go arrest them, charge them with a crime. It's really not that uncommon. It happens. In some states, if they took less than $500 worth of stuff, they're charged with a misdemeanor. If it's over $500, they're charged with a felony. Felony grand larceny or petty larceny, I think, maybe. I mean, these are common scenarios that play out all the time. Donald Trump's pretending that this is a problem in society that he knows how to fix. It's insane. If they do anything, they lose their family, they lose their house, they lose their pension, they get fired. We have the greatest law enforcement in the world. They know exactly what to do, but they're not allowed to do it by incompetent politicians. They know exactly what to do. Kill teenagers, I guess. Okay, fantastic idea. So anyways, I got a voicemail about this. I want to listen to the voicemail, see what they had to say. Check this out. Palin, Guy Young, Brookville, and I caught a couple clips of uh, Trump's visit to uh, California. And in the one, he says that uh, when, he, when he's going he's gonna to let uh, people, you know, shoplifting, they, they, get, they get shot, you know. You steal a candy bar and somebody can, has a legal right to uh, kill you. Then he starts joking when he goes to uh, Beverly Hills and making a speech. He starts joking about the guy who broke into uh, Nancy Pelosi's house and beat her husband over the head with a hammer. That's okay. You get shot. You get killed for a Kit Kat, but it's okay to beat somebody over the head with a hammer. R.I.P. GOP 2023. I can't wait. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Donald Trump made jokes about Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's husband, getting beaten with a hammer, almost dying. He turned out to be okay, but just barely. It was an insane situation, and as disturbing as it gets. And Donald Trump seemingly endorses it, thinks it's funny, laughs about it. What is wrong with this dude? The fact is, he never cared about anybody's well-being. He doesn't care if people steal from shops or any of that. What he cares about is his own personal self-interest. And he will go to any lengths to increase his poll numbers. And if that means being needlessly cruel and absolutely insane, he'll do it. Why not, right? Absolutely nuts, man. What happened to qualified immunity? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Fantastic point. Qualified immunity exists for cops. Police don't have to worry about being sued for any of this stuff. It's completely made up what he's saying. Qualified immunity is a protection for police so they don't get in trouble for whatever they do, basically. And they won't get in trouble for doing nothing at all. Trump is just making this up as part of his 
fear campaign, effectively, trying to freak his followers out as much as he possibly can. It's just sad. Hey, Owen. Um, I'm from Wisconsin. I'm, you know, I'm a Christian. I love your show. I love listening to it in the background. Just got to make a request. This is nothing political and, you know, or anything like that. But can you please stop saying that Christ is gay or will have orgies? It's it's incredibly disrespectful and rather tasteless. I want to keep listening to your show, but it's kind of hard to when you're making claims of God about my God. Anyways, um, I hope that you listen to this and have a good day. Yeah, I appreciate the voicemail. Um, just to give a little context to this, I said uh, fairly recently that it was kind of weird to me that Jesus was in his 30s and had never had a girlfriend or a wife or an anything, and he was always around guys, right? He had like 12 apostles, and they were all dudes. That was interesting. Suggested maybe they were all hanging out together. I'm not sure why that's offensive. Why is that offensive? I mean, I wasn't like crassly claiming that he was doing any of this stuff. I was just suggesting maybe like it's kind of weird he didn't have a girlfriend or anything that whole time. That's all. And anyways, why do you care if he was gay or not? Why does it matter? I go out of my way to not be offensive to Christians or to Jews or Muslims or or anybody at all. I want to have real discussions, and I want them to hear me. I want them to think about what I'm saying. Now, some religions, like Islam, have a tendency to lock down the moment you give any criticism. Same with Jehovah's Witnesses in Christianity. Same with Mormons. Same with Scientology outside of any of those. Some religions lock down and get offended the moment you say anything critical about them. But I'm sorry, that's just going to happen. Aside from that, I don't see what's offensive about me suggesting maybe Jesus was, you know, gay. You know that there's a book called The Wife of Jesus. It's an apocryphal book. We don't even know if it's real. That's why it's not in the Bible, at least partially. I think that they determined maybe it should be in the Bible um, not too long ago. But I don't it was The Wife of Jesus or something like that. I don't think that it's about him having a wife. It was where he's telling a parable about people having a wife or something to that effect. It's not offensive for me to talk about him having a wife, is it? Why would it be offensive for me to talk about, you know, him having a husband or a boyfriend? If that's offensive, maybe you should think about why. Anyway, thank you for the voicemail. I hope you kind of get what I'm saying and, and see where I'm coming from. And don't take it as an offense against you. Hey, brother, Lou here. Um, I was wondering, I love that the voicemails are here, but would we consider possibly going to 45 seconds rather than 30 so that we can get more, uh, just a little bit more? Question mark. Yeah, I appreciate the voicemail, Lou. Uh, Yeah, you can give me um, 30 to 45 seconds, and I will likely hear it as well. Just keep it to 45 seconds or shorter, ideally. Yeah, I don't really have a huge problem with uh, hitting those Uh, slightly longer voicemails. Some of them are really interesting. Some of them aren't even intended to be played on air. But uh, yeah, send them in anyways. 1-800-701-8573 is the number. Give me a call. Hey, Owen, it's Lou. Um, I've been just wondering, with all the crazy Christian stuff popping up in all the different areas, what have you heard about like Catholicism, Roman Catholic? Has that been having any roots in all of this political craziness and cultishness? Thanks. Yes. As a matter of fact, Catholicism has 
contributed actually heavily to this. But Catholicism is kind of a broad ranging group of people, interestingly enough, and they have a, a broad ranging set of beliefs. For example, there's a guy named Tom Brown. He's a Catholic, and this is him faith healing some dude. In the name of Jesus, and I thank you for your power right now, in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Alex, move that back around. Come on. Act in faith. Hallelujah. Act in faith. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Lift up your head like that. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And can you touch your toes right now? Hallelujah. 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 Praise God. Any change yet? What, what kind of change do you have? I we had bad pain in the back, but right, I didn't even know what the stain might come. Uh -huh. I was just be feeling it already. And you're not feeling it right now? I'm not right now. No pain right now. That's better than a chiropractor, isn't it? Better than a chiropractor? Well, anything is because chiropractors are charlatans too, but that's neither here nor there. That's a story for another day. I won't get into it. Anyway, the point is Catholics are out there doing charlatan tricks too to some degree, and they are trying to take over the government to some degree also, just like Christian nationalists and, um, you know, uh, right-wing extremists and stuff like that. They're all jumping into this and, and trying to take over to some degree. But I don't think it's the majority of Catholics. I think most Catholics are pretty chill for the most part, although they are most definitely in a high-control group. Catholicism is really, really extreme and, and it touches your life in a lot of areas, which is a negative thing. Not good. I, I wish that people would see how religion is manipulating them and using them and controlling them in their lives instead of being stuck in this their entire life. It's just a shame. So anyways, yeah, Catholicism contributes, but I don't think it's a, a majority by any stretch. Somebody mentioned that chiropractors have helped them a lot. That's fantastic if your chiropractors helped you. He didn't go to med school. He may have some half license from somebody, but he's not licensed as a medical professional. He's not, he's not licensed as a physician. He doesn't have to take certain oaths like the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. Doesn't, I mean, chiropractors are not real medical professionals in any way. If you know a guy that was helpful to you, great. I have a friend that's been helpful to me. He doesn't know any more about medicine than anybody else, but he's helped. He happens to know how to put a rib back in place or put, you know, pop a shoulder back into its socket or whatever. So that's that's cool. But he's not licensed as a medical professional. If I need one of those, I'm going to a doctor, like a doctor rather than a chiropractor. Chiropractic was founded in mysticism and ridiculous nonsense anyways the the founder of chiropractic believed a whole bunch of really bizarre stuff that relate um that's closely related to homeopathy just it's not for today i'll get into it another day it's a whole big thing i have to write another outline to talk about anyway chiropractic is not not real and not you know maybe it's helpful to some people it's not real Hey, Owen, Guy Young, Book for Illinois. I caught your uh, <clears throat> YouTube clip, Trump Cult is Concentrated Extremism. The thing about but people don't understand about government, the only purpose of government is to take care of the people. It is to provide safety nets. People say, oh, all they should do is, you know, provide the police and the military. Why? Get the police to hold down the poor people and the military to attack other countries. That's it. And they think that's it. 
To oppress the people inside and the people outside, yeah. Or to prevent anybody else from coming in to stop the oppression of the people on the inside, right? That is the purpose of government. Otherwise, there should be no government. We can't have anarchy, and we'd still be living in the Stone Age. Government is what the, the only way we live at the level that we do is because of government, period. Organization, period. And that's why it's got to be RIP GOP 2023, because they want to destroy the government. They want to destroy civilization. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you on that. At this point in civilization, it is not, in my opinion, possible to live without a government. With all the technology advances that we've had in the past 50 to 100 years and everything, it, certainly with the... the the amount of people in the world or even in the, the you know in this state or in this country the amount of people around us in in our communities it's not possible to live without a government it's not now may, maybe you personally can live without a government but that means that you got your wealth from somewhere that you're sitting on and you don't have to use it for anything other than you you know going to a store you don't have to get any more money because you already have enough and even when you go to that store who do you think put the regulations in place that guarantee that the chicken that you purchase to eat is not going to make you sick every regulation that we have is written in blood somebody paid in blood for that regulation people would be storing plutonium or uranium next to break rooms if it wasn't for regulation if somebody hadn't done that that wouldn't exist as a law somebody died to put in the regulations that we have because companies will take every inch that they can get every inch so yeah i completely agree it's not possible to live in a libertarian hellscape the way that some people want to anymore certainly not anymore if it ever was maybe a thousand years ago, you could have lived in a little libertarian commune or something. Yeah, it's just absurd. Government should be doing everything it can to make life not miserable for the lower half of the pyramid. There will always be an underclass. Uh, there will always be a set of second-class citizens or people on the bottom rung of society. That's how capitalism works. There can't be people on the top without people on the bottom. So government's job is to make sure that the people on the bottom can survive. They're not going to die in the streets. If they don't have money, they can go to a hospital and get health care treatment anyways if they have appendicitis. If they don't have any money, they'll still be able to survive in, in some way. That's what government's for. But not the Republicans. They're just going to keep cutting taxes until... The debt shoots through the roof, and then they're going to blame it on Democrats and say, we got to cut spending and all that. That's that's the goal, really. That's the trick they're playing right now. Anyway, let me know what you think about it in the comments. Next, we're going to talk about why Palestine seems to hate Israel so much. We'll be right back. Don't forget to check out my Patreon and check out my website and email list for early access to uncensored, ad-free, complete videos. All links are in the description. Israel and Palestine have been effectively at war with each other since the dawn of time, as it turns out. But a lot of people don't know why. They don't know what's going on. Why are they at odds right now? Some stuff just went down. 
Hamas went into Israel. Israel retaliated. It's a huge mess. So I want to tell you guys why Palestine and Israel have a problem with each other. So let's talk about all of it from beginning to end. And if you disagree with me on this, hang with me through it, and we'll see where you stand afterward. I wanted to put up a map for you guys to see of Israel just because, you know, it's a subject. But even the map is so hotly debated and contentious. I can't even put up a map for this. I did so much research for this, it's ridiculous. I have a nine-page outline. I'm not going to be able to hit it all, but we'll get as much as we can. Let me start at the beginning. This is a map of the area that we're talking about. This little spot right here that you see, I I'm kind of circling it with my mouse. I made my mouse really big so you could see. This uh, spot I'm circling says Canaan. This is Israel and Palestine and that whole entire area. Modern-day Israel, Palestine, Jordan, etc., Syria, and Lebanon, and so on and so forth. You can see Egypt here. This is supposedly where Moses was. You can see the Red Sea right here. This is supposedly what Moses parted. As far as I can tell, Moses wasn't actually a real person. There is absolutely zero evidence that he ever existed, and there should be. In the Bible story, Moses goes from Egypt over to Canaan. Now, Canaan was inhabited by groups of people, different groups. There were the Canaanites and there were the Jews, among others. Now, Canaanites had their own pantheon of gods at the time. Just like, you know, Rome and Greece had a pantheon of gods, Zeus and Neptune and Poseidon and so on and so forth. The Canaanites had gods that they worshipped also, multiple gods, some of whom included Baal, that was a Canaanite god, Catharat, Eshmun, Kothar, Lotan. If you scroll down far enough, you'll find that Yahweh was one of the gods in the Canaanite pantheon, Yahweh. You know, the Canaanites are people that lived in the same area as the Jews at the same time. Isn't that weird? They had a god that they believed in, and that god was named Yahweh. Eventually, the Jews adopted Yahweh as their one true God. The Canaanites were polytheistic, of course. They believed in multiple. And the Jews turned monotheistic, taking on Yahweh as, one of, as the only God that they believed in, and that was part of the dictate. They could not believe in any others. And the deal that they made with Yahweh was, you protect us, and we will worship you and only you, and we will spread your glad tidings to the, the world or whatever. Time went on and Canaan eventually turned into two separate countries. The Canaanites were genocided or ethnically cleansed otherwise by Jews and others. Philistines and uh, Palestinians were there and a whole bunch of other people in the area. They all came in and swarmed and, and changed the layout of the map and who owned what. Now, the interesting thing about this little strip of land, I hear you saying, like, why would anybody care about this little strip of land? They were taken by empire after empire after empire. Why did anybody care? And the answer is because uh, this little section right here, the, the section I have highlighted, this little section right here is Israel. And the, it's this little strip of land right here. And it connects Africa to Asia to the rest of the world. That one little strip of land connects everything else, connects those two continents. 
So trade was possible if empires took that little strip of land. If they didn't take that little strip of land, then they had to pay tributes or tariffs or whatever when they brought goods through that section. So everybody wanted that area where Israel sat. The story of Israel is one where it's taken over by empire after empire after empire. When one empire takes it, it's taken by a different one, and that empire falls. In 1000 BCE, a thousand years before Jesus you know, came to earth or whatever, there's a boy named David. According to the books, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, kind of tells David's story, right? King David. David was a young boy, and the king at the time was King Saul. Now, David pissed some people off and ended up fleeing to the south. Now, if you know anything about Jewish lore, Jewish history, there were 12 sons of Israel, 12 tribes. Those 12 sons constituted the, the forefathers or the ancestors of these 12 tribes that existed as part of Israel. The tribes were led by Levi and Asher and Reuben and Judah and, the, you know, all of these 12 children. They led these different tribes that, that had different roles to play in the Israeli government at the time. But Judah, the tribe of Judah, split off and went south. This is about the best I could get to kind of portray what I'm talking about. The kingdom of Israel was up here. The capital was Samaria. People from Samaria were called Samaritans. Should tell you something if you were Christian at any point. The people in the south were from the kingdom of Judah. So Israel is the north, Judah is the south, and the capital of Judah was Jerusalem. The first five books of the Bible constitute the Torah in Jewish beliefs. They're written from different perspectives. They were not written by the same person, and it was not Moses. But the belief by Jews and Christians alike is that Moses was the guy that wrote the five books. Well, whoever it was, was from the kingdom of Judah because they were extremely critical of the north. Judah and Israel couldn't stand each other for a while there. They, they fought with each other constantly. The other 11 tribes lived in, in Israel, and the, the tribe of Judah lived in Judah. So in 1000 BCE, roughly, David is chased out of Israel and into Judah. He was just a kid. And according to the narrative, he becomes kind of a Robin Hood character. He's like well-liked among his peers and builds kind of a coalition or, or builds a name for himself, a reputation. And it comes to the point where King Saul was killed by his courtiers. And David walks in and becomes the next king. And the very first thing that he does is king, kill those courtiers that betrayed Saul for treason or something like that, high treason. David managed to unite this entire area. The whole thing was united under one kingdom, which was a, a ridiculous challenge. They had uh, some type of an army throughout history. The Jews have had armies that went to war with various different factions, the Philistines and the everybody else. And David was the only one that managed to unite this little strip of land and get tariffs from everybody who passed through it. 
David seems to be a real person. We we do seem to have physical archaeological evidence that David was a real person. Now, what do we know about him? Only what's written in the Bible. And the Bible or the Torah or the whatevers are not reliable because they were passed down as stories orally told to people generation after generation. And you know how the game of telephone works. You whisper it to one person who tells it to the next person, tells it to the next. By the end of the line, it's a completely different story. Right? The fish keeps getting bigger every time you tell the story. So I, don't, I, I understand that Jews had a rich tradition of oral storytelling, and they told their stories through song and, and other creative ways of building it into their culture so it wouldn't be forgotten. But stories get morphed and modified and warped over time. Over the course of a thousand years, the story's not going to be the same. So I'm very distrustful of the biblical narrative or the narrative from the perspective of the Torah. At this time, the Philistines and the Palestinians were in the area, okay? This red spot that you see here, Philistine states, this is modern-day Gaza. And it was up until, I don't know, 50 years ago or so, it was annexed and owned by Egypt. That, that's part of the big war. Well, Palestine currently owns the Gaza Strip. Okay, so David dies... And his son, Solomon, King Solomon, takes control. He's the baby cutter, you know, the king that was a baby cutter. That story, if you're from a Christian background, the story about the king who was so wise, you know, this woman had a baby and her baby died. And there's another woman with a newborn and she stole the other woman's newborn and they went in front of King Solomon and... The woman said, this is my baby. And the other said, no, it's my baby. And so King Solomon said, I know, I'll cut the baby in half. You both get one half. And so the real mother was like, no, no, she can have it. And he was like, that's how I know that you're the real mother. So anyways, he's known as the, you know, the baby cutter in my mind or wise King Solomon in normal people's minds. So Solomon is the son of David. He takes the kingship and it shatters under his reign. The kingdom splits apart into a billion pieces again and he doesn't control it anymore. However, he does build a temple. That was around 900 to 1000 BCE. It's hard to tell. Again, the archaeological evidence we have from this time period is very slim. We're basing this off the biblical narrative at this, at this point. So you got to take it with a grain of salt. So the temple being created was a big deal under Solomon. That was kind of the, like, the start of Judaism as a... a legitimate belief system in their minds. The temple was like a theological touchstone. It was an important moment in their history. That was the, the beginning of the first temple. It was created under King Solomon. 586 BCE, the first temple falls to Babylon. The kingdom of Babylonia, as it's called, you can see this green area. Down here is where Babylonia was, and it's in modern-day Iraq. The Babylonians went up the Fertile Crescent all along this green area and back down toward the Dead Sea. And you can see Palestine. They went through Syria and they took Israel and this whole little strip here, all of it. They took everything. The Arabian Desert was down here. They ignored the Amorites. Yeah, and they just took this whole spot right here. King Nebuchadnezzar is the one that took all this stuff. That's when the temple was destroyed, 586 BCE. Now, Nebuchadnezzar actually went in in 601 BCE, 
about 15 years earlier, but it took multiple tries to hit Jerusalem before he finally took control of it. And it was a vassal state. He was controlling it. He was taking tribute from them and everything for a while until the king of now just Judea, because Israel shrunk down and all of the Jews kind of went into Judea, which is like the southern part of Israel. The king of Judea at the time refused to pay tribute anymore. He's like, I'm done. And that was four years into being captured by Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Nebuchadnezzar said, okay, and he just killed him. That was the end of it. And he destroyed the temple in 586 BCE. That date is extremely important to Jehovah's Witnesses. As I was once a Jehovah's Witness, I know exactly what that date is and its significance. Jehovah's Witnesses and the entire world used to believe that that date was actually 607 BCE, but the rest of the world now knows it was 586 BCE, not 606, 607 BCE. Jehovah's Witnesses refused to accept that fact, and they've built their entire theology off of it and came up with some creative Bible math to calculate the end of the world was going to come in 1914. And of course, that fell flat. So they said, well, Jesus really came back that year. It was just invisibly. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. That date is the year that the first temple that King Solomon built fell. And it's extremely significant in Jewish and, and Christian belief systems. It's a signifier that God had kind of given up on the Jews at that moment in history, according to Jewish lore and Christian lore and everything. According to the biblical narrative, when the Babylonians took Judea, they actually took all of the Jews back to Babylon with them to be slaves. But that is not actually what happened. Archaeologists believe that about 4,600 Jews were actually taken to Babylon. The Bible says it was 20,000. But that's still only 25% of what the population was at the time, roughly. So it was not all of them. In fact, it wasn't even like a, a high percentage of them. According to archaeology, it was about uh, 6% of the Jews were taken and put into slavery in Babylon, which is horrific, but that's not the entire Jewish population as is portrayed in the Old Testament. So at this moment, Israel becomes Samaria, the home of the Samaritans, it previously the name of its capital city. And I'm not sure when it became known as Yehud, but at some point it became known as Yehud, and it was kind of its own province within either the Babylon Empire or what came next, which is the Persian Empire. King Cyrus comes in and takes over the entire area, took over Babylon and everything, all of Judea and everything, all of it. At which point the Jews, quote unquote, whoever the Jews were who were in captivity in Babylon, about 4,600 people, whoever's telling the biblical narrative is what I'm saying here. Whoever's telling the biblical narrative was likely taken to Babylon as a slave. They were freed, whoever it was, and ended up back in Yehud or Judea. Israel no longer exists. It was all kind of condensed into a single kingdom called Yehud, which is the Arabic name for Jews, in the language of the area anyways. So King Cyrus of Persia sweeps in and takes out the Babylonian Empire in 539. So the temple falls 586 to the Babylon Empire. King Cyrus sweeps in 539. So we're talking a, a difference of about uh, 40 years. So 40 years after the, the kingdom of Judea or Israel is captured, 
King Cyrus comes in and lets the slaves go. And when they get back, they come to Judea and find that Samaria is a kingdom above them now. So Israel is now known as Judea, or the home of the Jews is Judea. And Samaria, previously Israel, is actually home to people still. Now, the Samarians claim that they are ancestrally Jewish. So they are from the other 12 tribes, not the tribe of Judah, but they are people from the tribe of Asher and Reuben and Simeon and so on and so forth. Or was that, was that the name? I think it was Simeon. Anyways, uh, so the Samarians claim Jewish heritage. I believe they claim it to this day. And there are still Samaritans alive today. There are, in, as of 2022, 894 Samaritans alive. They have been ravaged by war their entire lives, basically. So, yeah. Their entire history, honestly. I swear to God, I'm getting up to the Palestinian conflict. This little pink section you can see here, this is Palestine. Uh, the Philistines were driven out by this point by, you know, the Babylonian Empire and then the Persian Empire. Uh, Palestine exists in this little pink spot. This is the Gaza Strip. So at this point, they had an opportunity to rebuild their temple, 515 BCE, because the Jews returned to Judea, and the capital of Judea is Jerusalem. So they build their temple where it was originally, in Jerusalem, where King Solomon built it. So 515, they construct it, and it there it stood for 500 years or so. So in 37 BCE, roughly 480 years or somewhere in that vicinity, after it was originally rebuilt, King Herod remodeled and expanded it. For the record, there is no evidence that Cyrus abolished slavery or that he had slavery. That's part of the biblical narrative. We don't know if that's true or not. The return from Babylon area, modern-day Iraq, to Judea was a slow trickle, not a big migration the way that the biblical narrative told it. You know, I, I suspect that the biblical narrative was just told from the perspective of a, of a single person, and that person believed that everybody was taken and then returned at the same time. So after Persia, uh, you know, uh, King Cyrus and all that, he frees all of them. They start to rebuild the temple in 515. Persia continues on to attack Greece in 499 and then another, a second wave in 480. Now, it, just try to give you some context for what that looked like, what the area looked like at the time. This is this section right here. This is Israel, and this is modern-day Iraq, and the this is where the Persians were, like off of the picture a little bit here. They swept in, took over the Babylonian Empire, which existed in Iraq, took Israel, and then went up to Greece and, and took Greece. For the record, Cyprus, this little island right here that, that the hand is over, it's believed that that's where the Philistines were from originally. They migrated to the shores of Israel and stuff. So uh, Persia goes on to Greece. They attack it twice. They took some territory. They weren't completely successful, but they got some. So that's 499 and 480. And then in the 330s BCE, Alexander the Great from Greece takes control of the entire area. He starts spreading Hellenism. The Greeks called themselves Hellens at the time, or Hellenes or something. I don't know how it's pronounced. And Hellenism was the act of Greekification, incorporating the Greek culture into their own culture. 167 to 164, I'm just trying to give you like a chronological order here. 
167 to 164 is known as the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabees were a Jewish militant group that retook the area from Alexander's general, Seleucid. Uh, his empire, he was already dead. When Alexander the Great died, his Greek empire split into four sections, led by Ptolemy and Seleucid and a couple of others. I don't remember their names. Well, Israel fell in the Seleucid Empire. So the Maccabees were pretty much fed up with everything because the leader of the area at the time, the leader of the Seleucid Empire, his name was Antiochus, and he ordered the Jews to burn pigs on the altar in the temple, which obviously Jews don't eat pork. That's an extreme offense to them. He banned circumcision, and he ordered an altar erected to Zeus in the temple. This is part of the Jewish story, the, the traditional stories that the Jews tell. Is it true? Uh, we have some supporting evidence for some of this stuff. We're relying heavily on Jewish oral traditions at this immediate moment. So the Maccabees were a Jewish militant group that retook the area from the Seleucid Empire, and they created a little area, just a small little province, a little tiny state around Jerusalem and around the temple. Now, that is the source of the Hanukkah story, that battle that took place. The battle is very specific. It gets into a lot of detail, the story that's told about it. Metatheus was a Jewish priest. He killed the first Jewish person who was in favor of the Greekification of the Hellenism, and he killed the Greek official that was sent to enforce that rule about building a, a temple to Zeus or an altar to Zeus in the temple and burning pig and, and all of that other stuff. That was the start of the Maccabean revolt. And from that moment on, it became its own state and it was called Yehuda Hamakabi. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It translates to Judah the Hammer. Some of this stuff isn't really necessary, but it's so super fascinating to me. I, I, I want to tell you guys anyways. Greece broke apart into four different empires, the Seleucid Empire, the Ptolemy Empire, so on and so forth. This is the only two I remember right now. And then the Roman Empire sweeps in, right? So we start at Greece, and you can see the little, the little corner of Italy right here, right? This is roughly where Rome was in Italy. And Rome expanded out and took over the entire area, took over Greece, took over everything. It owned, like, literally all of this. This is the Middle East and Greece and Rome and everything. Uh, Spain's even in here, the British Isles. This is the Roman Empire. It owned Egypt and all of it, everything, top to bottom. At this point, the Jews had to kind of adapt a little bit to, like, living in the Roman Empire, and it wasn't terrible. They had some autonomy. The Maccabees gained autonomy for them for, like, a, a while anyways, the revolt happened 167 to 164, but they maintained fully independent state from 110 BCE to 63 BCE. So 63 years before Jesus came along, basically, or before he was born or whatever. That was like right in the center of the Roman Empire. Like it overlapped because the Roman Empire conquered Greece in 146 BCE and, you know, this entire area. And then the Pharisees appear around 160 BCE. If you are a Bible-believing Christian or you used to be, Pharisees probably sounds familiar to you. So what were the Pharisees and what were the scribes? They were 
framed as enemies in the Bible. As a Christian, I believe them to be enemies of Jesus, right? Well, they were. They were enemies of Jesus, but they were just Jewish people in the area at the time. The Pharisees were. Scribes drafted legal papers like marriage certificates and land purchases and stuff like that. There's at least one scribe per town, and they knew enough about the Jewish law to be able to challenge what Jesus said. Mark, the book, the book of Mark, the, the writer of the book of Mark, believed scribes were Jesus' biggest adversaries. The writer of the book of Matthew, whoever that was, believed that the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were people who wanted to adopt more Roman culture into Jewish culture. They wanted to kind of integrate a little bit, which is something the Jews have not done up to this point. They've been conquered by nation after nation after nation throughout centuries, throughout millennia. And they've managed to not integrate into any other cultures fully or not allow other cultures into theirs without a lot of time and effort, basically. So the Pharisees were a group that appeared around 160 BCE, 160 years before Jesus came around, and they were trying to push for rabbinicism. They are the basis for modern-day Judaism, the, the Pharisees are. They were considered legal experts at the time. That's why they were considered like one of Jesus' main adversaries, because they also had the knowledge to challenge the things that Jesus said or his interpretation of the Jewish holy texts or ask him tough questions that only a, a Jewish scholar would know. Like, how knowledgeable are you on the subject? You're, you claim to be somebody really special. You should know like everything about it, right? Well, the Pharisees believed that Moses had oral commandments as well, not just the written down commandments that he brought off the sermon. At, uh, um, I'm sorry, <laughs> I was going to say Sermon on the Mount, that he brought off the mount with him. The Pharisees believed that the oral commandments should never be written down. However, in 70 CE, the second temple that, that Herod remodeled and that was rebuilt after Jews returned from Babylon the second temple was destroyed in 70 CE. So that's about 45, 50 years after Jesus was making a splash in the area. And uh, it, it freaked the Pharisees out. And they're like, we need to write these down. Like, I don't care. We need to preserve this stuff. So they wrote down all of the information from the oral traditions, the oral uh, commandments that were passed down from Moses' day. They wrote it all down for preservation purposes. And that is now known as the Talmud. The Talmud is one of the Jewish holy books that Christians don't use. Talmud, it's a big complicated thing. They're holy books, and I don't have time to get into all of them, but their holy books make up about 24 books total, 2,200 pages to the, the Bible's 1,200 pages, roughly. It includes the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It includes the book of Psalms, which the books of Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, and then they have Ezra to Nehemiah, collectively called the Tanakh. The word Psalms literally means songs. A lot of these beliefs and traditions and ideas were passed down through songs so as to maintain their credibility or their authenticity or whatever. So they aren't changed. So they can't be changed. They were, they were packaged into songs that people would sing. So the oral commandments themselves were called the Mizna. The Talmud included the Mizna and was a big, long thing that was broken down that included all of the oral traditions and cultural expectations and everything uh, in Jewish culture. The Talmud that's commonly used today is called the Babylonian Talmud. It was the most in-depth 
version of the oral traditions, and it was largely written in Aramaic. We were in 70 CE when the Second Temple fell. That was a huge moment in Jewish history when the Second Temple fell because they kind of scattered after that moment. They, they dispersed throughout the rest of the area that we're looking at here. Roman Empire comes 146 BCE. And then the Temple Falls 70 CE, so they are in the Roman Empire currently, I believe. Titus was the, the army general that led the battle against the Second Temple. He was the army general at the time, 69 to 79 CE, and he was the Roman emperor from 79 to 81. I believe his dad was the emperor before that. Like, when the Temple fell... Titus's dad was the emperor that oversaw that. Keep in mind, this is around the time the Gospels were being written, uh, around now. 70 CE, 80, 90, all the way up to 110 CE, I believe. 50, 60, 70, 80 years after Jesus died is when they were all written down. Now, the Jews had a rich history of oral tradition, storytelling that would last literal millennia by putting it into songs that they could sing. Christians didn't really have it. Like, Jesus people didn't have time to write songs yet. So all of this stuff is warped completely out of proportion for Christianity, at the very least. It's it's certainly warped out of proportion for Jews also. Mishnah. I'm sorry. Kootmaster corrects me. Mishnah. It's Talmud and Mishnah. I apologize. Yeah, the uh, pronunciations are going to be butchered, so I I'm doing my best. I'm sorry about that. Jews kind of disperse into various parts of the Roman Empire, right? And and they, of course, they stay around the area of Israel and Judah. They didn't completely leave that area, which is in this area right here, Egyptus and Arabia, this little section right here. Yeah, I think it's right above Arabia. If we, if we just zoom in a little bit, take a closer look, it's right where these two things meet right here is where Judah, Israel, that whole thing was over my magnifying glass. It's at this point that Jews start moving into other parts of the Holy Roman Empire. They move into Spain and Italy and various other spots. They move into Greece. And at this point, two distinct ethnicities form, like actual full-blown ethnicities. We've got Ashkenazi Jews. Those are the ones that were in the area that is now Germany, roughly. Germany, Greece, that type of area. And then we've got Sephardic Jews, which are the ones that were in Spain, this spot right over here on the left. They are all nearly identical culturally. There are just a couple of little differences, like for Hanukkah, for example, Sephardic Jews prefer to have a full set of candles to light for each individual person in the family. Extremely fundamentalist Sephardic Jews believe that only the men in the family should have the candles and light them. Ashkenazi Jews generally just have one set of candles per household. For the next 1,500 years, there is empire after empire after empire that comes through this area. And again, like the Jews still live here. There are still Jews in, in the area, of course. They did not leave the area entirely. And they're just like, they're getting like mistreated by everybody that comes through. There has to be an underclass in every society. And the Jews fit the bill every single time. There has to be somebody on the bottom rung who does the trash collection and makes minimum wage and lives in the tiniest houses 
and drives the tiniest horses and all of that other stuff. There has to be somebody on the bottom rung. That's how societies work since the beginning. As a government, it, you know, I believe governments should make the bottom rung as enjoyable as humanly possible. They should redirect some of the money that the, the ultra-mega-rich have. They should redirect it a little bit to the, the bottom rung, the, the lower 5 to 10%, so that everybody's kind of enjoying life instead of having such a huge disparity. Well, anyways, at the time, Jews made up that bottom 5% pr almost everywhere they went. They were the persecuted minority. Because it's easy to persecute minorities. That's who you persecute when you're in a system or in a society, uh, by and large. Like I said, the Jews are still in the area being persecuted for the next thousand years. From the 300s, when Christianity took control of the Roman Empire, which still existed, all the way through until, I don't know, the 1800s. It was empire after empire after empire that was coming through and taking control. Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, came around the area in 632. That's when he died. 636 to 640, this is CE, common era now. A holy war ensued. The tribes of Arabia conquered the area in the name of Islam. And Muslims treated Jews a little bit better than some of the previous ones. They allowed them to practice their beliefs and they didn't enslave them en masse, as far as I can tell, the archaeological evidence says. Because they were peoples of the book, quote-unquote, the word in Arabic that the Muslims used for it was A-H-L-A-L-K-I-T-A-B. Al-Al-Kitab, I think is how it's pronounced, maybe. Peoples of the book, i.e. Muhammad was not Jewish. He, wasn't, he didn't believe in any of the Jewish stuff, though there's a rumor that his great-grandmother was Jewish should make him Jewish, but anyways, he wasn't Jewish, but he believed he was from the line of Abraham, just like the Jews did, so they both believed they came from the same place, ultimately. They were Abrahamic religions. Islam was kind of broken into a triangle with full-blooded Muslims who had always been Muslims at the very top, and then converts, and then a variety of different people, slaves and non-Muslims at the very bottom, but one rung above the bottom were people of the book, Jews and Christians included, and Samaritans. So they were near the bottom of the social hierarchy, but they were not at the bottom. They were called dhimmis, I believe, D-H-I-M-M-I-S, meaning protected person. At this point, a caliphate existed. A caliphate just means basically successor to Muhammad. No, it means literally successor. It just means successor. That's what the word means. A caliph was like the leader. He's kind of like the pope of Islam, if you will. And the caliphate is the empire that he runs. A caliphate controlled the area for a while. This is around the year 600 CE to 1000 CE, give or take. Ashkenazi Jews started speaking Yiddish around 7 to 900, give or take. At this point, the Al-Aqsa Mosque was built in Jerusalem. And guess where they put it? Right where the old Jewish temple used to be. So the third temple was the Al-Aqsa Mosque, effectively. Up until the year 1100, roughly, Muslims controlled the area, at which point the Crusades started, 1095 to 1291. 
to take back the Holy Land from Muslims. So southern France united with the Eastern Roman Empire, also known as the Byzantine Empire. They started trying to invade that area to take the Holy Land back because they are all giga Christians in this area now, like ultra mega Christians. They didn't identify as Roman. They identified as Christian Roman. The, uh, and that was very intentional. The leaders in Eastern Rome at the time encouraged that mindset. They wanted to make Christianity part of the identity. Like I said, the, the Roman Empire split up. The Western part of it broke into a billion different kingdoms. You know, the kingdom of the Vandals, the kingdom of the Visigoths and the Anglo-Saxons and so on and so forth. But the Eastern Roman Empire still existed. So that was the uh, Byzantines and southern France area united with them in the Crusades to try to take the Holy Land back between 1095 and 1291. Eventually, they kind of gave it up. Egypt came in and took the area, and then the Ottoman Turks came in and took the area, and it, it was just traded back and forth, back and forth between a bunch of people. Okay, that brings us up to modern day. Oh, my God. I'm sorry, guys. That was a long story to get to modern day. Now, here's the m roughly modern day explanation. Ottoman Empire owned the area from the 1840s until 1920s when Britain took control. We're talking Palestine, Judah, and that whole area. It was all owned by Britain, the British Empire at the time. Britain was being very imperialistic. They were in, a, in an imperialistic and colonizing phase at that moment in their history. They'd colonized a bunch of Africa. They'd colonized America, of course, and Australia and everything, and they were taking money from people left and right. That was 1920 when they took control of the area, and that brings us to World War II. Let's say 1932 all the way to 1945. We'll give it a nice big range. That's when the Jews are being heavily persecuted in Germany and the surrounding areas. Hitler rolls into Poland 1939. That's like the start of World War II officially, but it had been kind of going on behind the scenes for a long time. Hitler starts not just persecuting, but actually exterminating the Jews. And it was largely the Ashkenazis, because those were the ones that settled in that area. The Ashkenazi Jews lived in, in that, that little strip for a while. Germanic area, Greece, and, and stuff like that. Sephardic Jews lived in Spain, so they were a little bit more safe. But nearly every country was affected by World War II. Except... For that little strip of land in Palestine, now basically just owned by the British, and it was called Palestine at the time, I believe. That was unaffected by World War II, largely. There were some, you know, attacks and air raids and stuff on it, but there's a whole heckin' sea between Germany in World War II and Palestine. So he can either cross the sea, supplies are low, how is he going to get an army across the sea like that. Or Hitler can go through like 16 different countries to get to that area. That is why Hitler was taking over the region at that moment and not going into Palestine. So Jews were fleeing to Palestine area as much as they possibly could. They were fleeing to America also and just anywhere out of Hitler's reach. He did launch a couple of attacks on Palestine at the time, but they were repelled by the British who still had a presence there. April 30th, 1945, Hitler dies. From the 1920s all the way through to when Hitler died, there was a migration happening. There were some Jewish scholars who had written that Jews should be 
migrating to that general area or, or anywhere because of the persecution that was taking place against them. 1922 was the first British census of Palestine. There were 83,790 Jews there in 1922, 12% of the population. Mass migration had been happening since the, the, well, really the 20s, but the 30s certainly, because of the persecution happening. Hitler dies, and then in 1948, three years after Hitler died, was the Arab-Israeli War, okay? So tensions start growing between Jews in Palestine and Palestinians. 1947 comes along, and the UN declares Israel a sovereign state, and they had borders drawn out and everything. The UN did. They were all contested between Israel, Palestine, which is this little red section here, and uh, Egypt and Jordan, which at the time was called Transjordan. Syria, Lebanon, they all fought each other nonstop, basically, for a while there. 1948, the Arab-Israeli War officially starts. Jews were secretly being supplied with weapons by Czechoslovakia, which I believe at the time was a vassal state of Russia. If it's correct, it will stay in. So 1948, Arab-Israeli War, the Jews rise up and they take a section with the supplies given to them by various different countries, including the secret ones. As soon as the Jews officially declare a state, Arabs from five different countries invaded. Israel repelled the attack, but just barely. I forget the five countries. It was like Palestine, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon. I I don't remember all of them, but you get the idea. They all invaded. The Arabs were not getting along at the time in the area. Kind of a civil war to some degree. And that united them when the Jews took control of an area. From 1948 clear through to now, there have been border changes like you wouldn't believe. Like border change after border change after border change. If you look here, right here is the Gaza Strip what I'm highlighting. It's this little westernmost uh, spot right here in Israel. It was originally where the Palestinians lived, like originally, originally, like 800 BCE. That's where the Palestinians were. The Gaza Strip is contested. The West Bank, which is right here, this is contested. East Jerusalem. The Golan Heights was contested throughout this time period between 1948 and now. It's all been contested. Well, 1967 is one set of borders. I believe we should go back to the 1967 borders. And I think Israel should stop being imperialistic and trying to colonize areas that they're not entitled to. That's my position. It's the right wing government in Israel that is causing all of the havoc in the area at this moment. And I say that for a specific reason. Okay, listen to this. This whole area has been contested for 70-something years, right? At least longer. Oh, my God. Thousands of years. But the 70-something years that it's been contested, the Jews have been involved, like the past 70 years, right? Arabs finally give a 10-sentence resolution. They say, if you agree to this, we will walk away, and there will be no more border disputes, no more fighting, no more nothing. We will agree to... Peace, complete peace in the Middle East, if Israel can agree to this 10-sentence thing. Here it is. Complete withdrawal from the occupied Arab territories, which were outside of the battle line. They were not entitled to those areas. Okay, Those are like settlements that they pushed on to take that were not originally part of their lines that were drawn out. Complete withdrawal from the occupied Arab territories, including the Syrian Golan Heights, which is up here. 
top right, to the 4th of June 1967 line. So they wanted to go back to 1967 borders. And the territories still occupied in southern Lebanon, which is up here, the territories still occupied in southern Lebanon attain a just solution to the problem of Palestinian refugees to be agreed upon in accordance with the UN General Assembly Resolution number 194, i.e., you're going to take some area that Palestinians live in. If that's going to happen, you need to find a way to address the, the refugee problem that's being created by you taking areas that you are not really entitled to that we're offering to give you. That's basically uh, what, you know, what the resolution was offering. This is an apartheid state, guys. Israel and Palestine, apartheid states. They're, that means that they're, they're segregated, okay? If you are Palestinian, you can't take part to any real degree in the Israeli government. To be fair, I don't think Israelis can take part in the Palestinian government either. I don't want an apartheid state. Unfortunately, right now, Palestinians are the ones that are being oppressed by imperialistic Israel at this immediate moment. 1947 partition plan from the, U uh, from the United Nations. This is what it looked like. 1967 lines, this is what the Arab territories wanted Israel to agree to right here, where Palestine has 22% of the area. For the record, Palestine has 7 million people. Israel has 6 million people, and they have 22% of the land here. 2018, now split into two areas, A and B, and this is the Gaza Strip, as you can see and it's the West Bank. Those are the two areas that are in Palestinian control, and this is what it looks like now. It's just all split up, and, and it's, it's a mess. It's not good. And you know why? Because Israel keeps sending settlers in, kicking Palestinians out of their homes, putting them into open-air prison camps, effectively, and occupying areas they're not entitled to. So the leaders of the Arab territories in this peace agreement said, return to the 1967 lines, Find a way to deal with the Palestinian refugees in a way that, that doesn't involve ethnic cleansing, which is what's happening right now. Accept the establishment of an independent and sovereign Palestinian state on the Palestinian territories occupied since 1967 in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, with East Jerusalem as its capital. So right now, Jerusalem is controlled half by Palestine, half by Israel. Israel will not acknowledge that Palestine is a state and Palestine won't acknowledge that Israel's a state. This honestly sounds like a, an obscenely fair deal to Israel to me. They get this entire area. That's ridiculous how much they're getting out of this. They should absolutely be taking this, it seems to me. But okay. So that I'm only like on sentence seven of this deal. So return to the 1967 borders. Palestine gets East Jerusalem as its capital. In return, the Arab states will do the following. A. Consider the Arab-Israeli conflict over sign a peace agreement with Israel, and achieve peace for all states in the region. B. Establish normal relations with Israel within the framework of this comprehensive peace. And what happened when they offered this? This is 2002 it was offered, 2007 it was readopted, and then 2017. What happened 2002? George Bush is in control. He's like, oh my God, this is fantastic. Yes, I love everything about it. Israel said, go fuck yourself. We're not doing that. Ariel Sharon was the prime minister of Israel in 2002. Ehud Omert was in 2007. And then, of course, the current prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, was the prime minister of Israel in 2017, the third time it was offered, put on the table. All of them said, go f*** yourself. 
you're not getting anything. Israel said, we can't accept this because Palestinian refugees would live in Israel and that's unacceptable. We live in a segregated society here and we will not accept anybody of any ethnicity other than our own that lives in this state. Or if they do, then they're not going to have full rights as a full citizen, right, to be involved in the government and everything. And the second reason they rejected it, Palestine would regain ground, which means more terrorism. Now, Palestine is not made up of terrorists. It's an absolutely ridiculous thing for them to have said. Yes, terrorists have historically waged war in Palestine, used it as a staging ground, a jumping off point, because Israel keeps doing shit like building illegal settlements and not adopting the 10-sentence peace offer. 10 sentences, okay? That's how long it is. The Crown Prince Abdullah of Saudi Arabia made the offer and said, in spite of all that has happened, and what still may happen, the primary issue in the heart and mind of every person in our Arab Islamic nation is the restoration of legitimate rights in Palestine, Syria, and Lebanon. This is in 2002. We believe in taking up arms in self-defense and to deter aggression, but we also believe in peace when it is based on justice and equity and when it brings an end to conflict. Only within the context of true peace can normal relations flourish between the people of the region and allow the region to pursue development rather than war. In light of the above, and with your backing and that of the Almighty, I propose that the Arab Summit put forward a clear and unanimous initiative addressed to the United Nations Security Council based on two basic issues, normal relations and security for Israel in exchange for full withdrawal from all occupied Arab territories, recognition of an independent Palestinian state with Al-Quds al-Sharif as its capital, and the return of refugees. Al-Quds al-Sharif as his capital is a reference to basically having Muslims in charge there. Every step of the way, every turn, Israel has rejected offers of peace that are more than generous. Donald Trump claimed to have brought peace to the Middle East in July of 2020 with the Abraham Accords. In reality, he didn't. The United Arab Emirates, which is a country in that little area, the Levant is what it's called, United Arab Emirates, home of Dubai, officially recognized Israel as a state for the first time in exchange for Israel not annexing the West Bank in July of 2020. That was the agreement. You don't annex the West Bank, the UAE will recognize you as a state. That's the third state in the Middle East to recognize them. And, um, you know, they agreed to it. But guess what? Now Israel has invaded the West Bank. I, I'm not talking recently. I'm talking like this has been happening for a while now. They keep pushing into it. So the Abraham Accords lasted all of like a year before Israel started pushing into new territory once again. So here's the bottom line. Hamas is like ISIS. They're, they are fucking psychotic. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember what was happening with ISIS back when they first formed their caliphate, it was insane. They were doing the most horrific shit to people and they were filming it and putting it on the internet. I mean, torturing and killing people right in, fr like in front of a camera. It, it was stuff that will cause PTSD to watch. It's bad. I don't even want to say what was happening exactly. That's how bad Hamas is. They are bad. And Hamas just pushed into Israel beyond where the armistice lines were beyond the borders 
into actual Israeli territory. Internationally recognized Israeli territory. Hamas is f***ing psychotic and needs to be stopped. But you know what else is happening right now? This is happening right now. That's a building. That's a high-rise in Palestine that was destroyed. How many people were in this high-rise who were just civilians, didn't do to anybody, sitting there petting their cat watching Netflix? This is Israel retaliating against Palestine for what Hamas has done. I'm so frustrated with the fact that Palestine, I'm sorry, that Israel will not just accept the damn deal. It's been offered over and over again. It's a right-wing government that needs to go. It's comprised of right-wing fundamentalist extremist people. I don't care if they're Jewish, they're Christian, they're Muslim, or they're secular. I don't want a far-right extremist government in power in any case, no matter what. Israel needs to stop occupying areas that they're not entitled to. And, and they need to stop hurting civilians like this. What the hell is happening? Accept the deal, Israel. And Israel, I'm sorry to hear you lost some people to Hamas. They're nutcases. Completely unfair. Take the fucking deal. I mean, that's my position. Hamas is a bunch of nutcases. Israel is full of nutcases. These people need to pull it together and accept the deal. I hope Palestinians get the rights that they deserve, the human rights that they deserve. And I wish that there wasn't an apartheid state there. Well, somebody pointed out that they cut the light, so I guess some dude wasn't watching Netflix on that on that screen or like in that building because they cut the lights. Okay. The sad thing about this situation, one final thing I want to mention about this. Sad thing about this is that there's so much propaganda surrounding this. It's insane. There are people that are like Trump supporter extremist cultist nutcases about some of this. I found one propaganda website. Okay. I've given you the context that you need, the cultural context to probably understand exactly how this is propagandistic. I found this at the very end of my research and I was like, oh God, I got to pull this up. So they're, they're debunking some myths about Israel here, right? Myth. Israel has been an expansionist state since its creation. Fact. Israel's boundaries were determined by the United Nations when it adopted the partition resolution in 1947. Sure. Yes, that's true. Correct. But the claim is that it's an expansionist state since that point moving forward. So, okay, let's keep reading. Just kind of an unrelated thing to say when we're trying to debunk this type of myth, but whatever, whatever, let's keep reading. In a series of defensive wars, Israel captured additional territory. Huh, defensive wars, you say? Captured additional territory, you say? I'm not sure how those two things, like, fit together exactly. If it's a defensive war, how the hell do you capture additional territory? Propaganda from top to bottom, all through this entire discussion, not just on this website, but my God, you can't talk about this subject without propaganda leaking through everywhere. Do you have any idea how hard it was to find this information and verify that it was factual? Holy shit. I've been researching for two straight days. I think I might've put 20 hours into this research in the past two days, for real. We got to cool down on the propaganda, guys. I know it's wartime. I know it's kind of comes with the territory. Cool the propaganda down. Give people their human rights. Drop the far-right extremist fundamentalist shit, And accept the fucking deal, and I think we'll be okay. Anyway, that's my take. Let me know what you think in the comments, good or bad. Tell me your thoughts on it, okay? I'll take 
any and all criticisms of my breakdown. And one final mention, I researched this myself and spent a ridiculous amount of time doing so. I'm very confident all of this is correct, but there's a possibility maybe I didn't get something correct. So I'm going to catch it in editing. I'm going to cut it out if it's wrong. Everything you hear in this video is correct to the best of my knowledge and completely correct. And if I don't catch it in that final editing stage, I'll put a pinned comment at the bottom with any corrections that belong here. So if you have an honest, valid criticism, put it in the comments and I will pin it to the top. Is there a reason why both the radical left and the ultra-Orthodox anti-Zionists supported Palestinian cause? The reason the left supports the Palestinian cause generally is because the left tends to stand for human rights and human rights are being violated in Palestine terribly with these settlements. It's like an open-air prison. It's bad. It's bad. It's real bad. Israel is committing atrocities right now over there and has been for a while now against Palestinians. That's the reason why. Do you know why the right supports Israel? Let me show you why the right supports Israel, if you wondered. You guys remember Michelle Bachman? She was um, congressman for like in 2009, I think, for like a, a term or two. This is her reaction to Trump losing the election. I ask, oh God that you would take your iron rod and I ask that you would smash the clay jar of deceit in America, smash the clay jar of delusion in the United States of America, smash the delusion, Father, of Joe Biden as our president. He is not. So, yeah, that was her reaction to Biden winning the election. It was kind of hilarious. I, I eat it up. Well, Christian nationalists been talking about Israel and the final battle being in Israel for like ever. Far right Christian nationalist extremists but like uh, Michelle Bachman, Mike Lindell or whoever else. They all believe that the final battle of Armageddon is going to start in Israel when a bunch of countries invade and blah, blah, blah. You'll you'll see. Listen to what Bachman said to this person late September 2021. She's talking about when we left Afghanistan. She claims we left a bunch of weaponry and stuff behind. It's not true. We're talking billions and billions of dollars. Now, again, a foreign terrorist organization. They're the Taliban. Suddenly she doesn't like the Taliban. For under American law, we are prohibited from giving any money or materials or weaponry to the Taliban. That's correct, because they're a terrorist organization, legally, I believe. We gave them $90 billion <laughs> worth of weaponry. And no. No. Ammunitions, the finest military equipment the world has ever seen. It well, I, I believe America does have the finest military equipment the world's ever seen. But no, we didn't give the Taliban anything. They didn't even take any of that stuff. It's completely made up. The U.S. left some things behind that were destroyed and disabled and not usable when we pulled out of Afghanistan. It was not taken by the Taliban. It was not used by enemy armies or whatever. You know what guns the Taliban uses more than anything? The Kalashnikov. It's the Russian version of the AK-47, basically. That's what the Taliban is using, not our M-16s or a modified version of the AR-15. 
military equipment the world has ever seen, it, including more helicopters <laughs> than all of Australia has. That's how gargantuan this stockpile is. I think. I mean, our stockpile as Americans? Yeah, sure. We got a big military stockpile. We didn't give that to Afghanistan. It's five rifles for every Afghan. Well, it's unbelievable. If I can interject here, I do believe this weaponry will turn up in the Gog and Magog yes. War. Eze- Gog and Magog War. You catch that? Ezekiel 38 and 39, she thinks it's going to show up in the Gog and Magog War. Armageddon. Magog yes. War, Ezekiel yes. 38, 39. You read there about the weapons on the mountains of Israel. Some of this is the almost $90 billion in weaponry we left behind, folks. Just completely made up. And the Israelis are going to burn some of this weaponry for seven years, which is the length of the tribulation. So again, folks, apocalyptic things are happening. And when I... Just absurd. Every single time anything happens in the Middle East, this stuff takes place. Like literally anything. We pull out of Afghanistan and it, it they turn to like apocalypticism. They believe that like it's going to be like five minutes before the Great Tribulation starts or some other nonsense. Things are happening. And when I say that, I don't mean to say that to sound sensational. I'm saying oh, no? they leap out of the Bible. That's what's happening here. I had called you right after that yes, happened. You did. And I said, I think that this may be a possibility that these 90 billion will be yeah. used for the Ezekiel 38, 39 purpose. No, literally no to all of that. She's not even the first one to talk about it. She's certainly not going to be the last. I'm sure there are people talking about how this is the start of the apocalypse right now as you're watching this video. This is happening. Pat Robertson, all the way back in 1980, made a prediction. Listen to this one. Why is Israel so important? I mean, what is it about this little bitty country that sits right down in the middle of like, you know, you can't hardly find it. They can't even put the name on it to put it out in the ocean. What? It's so important because it's the strip called the Levant that connects two continents. Trade goes through that little strip. That's why it's important. But okay, go on. It's so important. Now, God has called this in the Bible the navel of the earth. Now, a navel is sort of like the place where a child is attached to its mother, and God used this as the place where he entered into human history. Wait, does he think babies are attached to the mother's belly button? Does he think that the umbilical cord goes from the baby's belly button to the mom's belly button? That would be hilarious. Sounds like what he's saying right now human history. And that's why all the world, the United Nations and the nations of the earth, one day are going to come and move against Israel. In 19, well, I'd give it 1982, but date setting is dangerous. I'd say within the next couple of years, we're going to see a war there. The next major war to be fought in the world is going to be right here. And was it? Of course not. The, the Cold War was happening at this moment. Soviets were battling with, like, everybody. I mean, it was just complete chaos after 1980. Anyways, Pat Robertson had no, what I, no idea what he was talking about. Michelle Bachman had no idea what she was talking about. Like, none of these people have any clue what's going on. But, you know, Zionists, extremists believe that Israel needs to exist as a state before Armageddon can start, because that's where it's going to start. And then, I, what, is it two-thirds of all Jews, or is it all Jews that just up and die when Armageddon starts. That's the belief of people like this. They don't support Israel because they like Jews. They don't like Jews at all most of the time. In fact, they hate Jews most of the time. You know, people on the far right, Christian nationalists. 
but they need Israel to exist for their prophecies and beliefs to be cohesive. So they support Israel to their dying breath. They send as much money as they possibly can to Israel, and Israel's just eating it up. Using that money to create settlements and kick Palestinians out and hurt people and, and bomb and everything, and it's just ugly. Judeo-Christian values, what are they? <laughs> right. Judeo-Christian values are fabricated. Judeo-Christian as a term didn't even exist until, I don't know, the 1900s, late mid-1900s? I don't remember when it was invented. But at the time, it was valuable for the Christian community to tie themselves to the Jewish community for political reasons. So they used the term Judeo-Christian values as a method of tying them together. In reality, Christian values and Jewish values are very, very different from each other. In fact, Christian values are all different from each other. There are no, like, Judeo-Christian values in reality. Frankenstein, they want to combine what is happening in Israel and Palestine with the second coming of Donald, Revelations, Apocalypse, and the entire Nutter, nutter spread out, and yikes. Oh, I know, I know, yeah. Donald Trump is, you know, in, in Christian nationalist minds, Donald Trump is Jewish. They believe he's Jewish. They think that after... You know, Israel was taken by the Babylonians and all that stuff. Judea was split off. And the other 11 tribes that were in Israel, they believe they crossed up over the Caucasus Mountains into the Great British Isles and ended up there as like Anglo-Saxons and came over to America and settled in America. George Washington, they believe, is Jewish. Christian nationalists believe this for real. I'm not joking. Like Shane Vaughn. Robin Bullock, um, Michelle Bachman, and others. It's like a full-blown conspiracy theory. And they think Donald Trump is Jewish. He's from the Jewish line, but the real Jewish line. The Jews that are in Israel right now are imposters in their mind. And they think Trump is like the Messiah. I I'm not joking. Anyway, just insane, dude. Next, we're going to talk about the fact that Mike Lindell is broke. He's not digging his way out of this one. His lawyers dropped him because he didn't have the money to continue paying him. Who could have seen this coming? Dude has always been so responsible with this money. We'll be right back. Don't forget to check out my Patreon and check out my website and email list for early access to uncensored, ad-free, complete videos. All links are in the description. We have to, I, I can't pay the lawyers. We can't pay, there's no money left to pay them. This is Mike Lindell and he's telling us that he's completely out of money. Oh, my God, dude. And the guy's been so responsible in the past with money, right? Let's talk about this guy's spending habits and how he got to where he is right now. For a little bit of context on, on what he's talking about with that, he made a bunch of bizarre claims about Dominion voting systems and Smartmatic that were simply untrue. Fox News made the similar or the same claims and just settled a billion-dollar lawsuit. Fox pays $750 million. They were being sued for a billion. They're suing Mike Lindell for a billion dollars also. That is far more than he was worth to begin with, but it's certainly more than he's worth now. Listen to this entire clip in context now that you know what's happening. He's talking about the lawyers in his Dominion case right now. He had to drop his lawyers in the Dominion case. By the way, this is from early October, 2023. Um, all the lawyers we have for my pillow and uh, myself in the lawsuits with the lawfare with Dominion and Smartmatic, they uh, 
just filed in federal court that uh, to drop uh, to drop us as our attorneys. And so Mike Lindell didn't drop the lawyers. The lawyers dropped Mike Lindell. They filed to drop him as a client. Drop, they're dropping out of the case, and he has no money to pay any more lawyers. Oh, my God. He is so fucked. I'm sorry, man. I, I've sworn so much tonight, it's ridiculous. I'm trying to limit myself, but wow, dude, this guy is in bad shape now. And, um, and this comes from uh, the lawfare, basically, and from the media. The attacks on my pillow, what American Express did... Uh, to take just devastating our credit and we I we have to I, I can't pay the lawyers we can't pay there's no money left to pay them that's crazy dude that is crazy I'm sorry I can't feel bad right now this dude has spent past I don't know six seven eight years trying to destroy democracy on Donald Trump's behalf seriously so let's talk about his history of questionable spending decisions for the record, this is not the first time that he's mentioned that he was in bad shape financially. Mid-March 2023. Check this out. This is on Steve Bannon's show. It's about, I guess, your loan, the loan you took out at uh, at uh, MyPillow. People, people are all over you about this. Yeah, there, last year, it actually was three separate loans as the, as the machine companies continue to sue us for billions of dollars. One billion, actually. And... Um, we had to borrow almost $10 million at MyPillow. We're a company. We're an employee-owned company. No, you're a Mike Lindell-owned company, actually. He's always redirecting all of the blame and pain and, and misery to the employees. Oh, don't, don't attack my employees like this. Oh, my employees are suffering. Thanks for making my employees suffer. No, Mike, it was you, okay? You did every part of this. But it's, the, it's always got to be the employees in his head. Oh, and let me give you a little advice, Mike, okay? Stop talking about your employees constantly. Nobody's buying it, first of all. And second, get rid of the mustache or grow a beard along with it, okay? I was Jehovah's Witness for too long to accept somebody only having a mustache and absolutely no other facial hair. I can't anymore. Too many Jehovah's Witnesses. At my pillow, we're a company. We're an employee-owned company. It just baffles me, Steve. You've got all these companies, are these machine companies out there? These voting machine companies that nobody even knew their name before, but everybody protects them. And yet, you attack a USA company, my pillow, and my employees. And by saying that, he's implying, or he's trying to make you think about the fact that he's a USA company. They're not. That was one of the big claims that they're based in Venezuela or some other thing. I don't even remember where now. And the votes went outside the U.S. to be counted in Germany on the machines, blah, blah, blah. It was all nonsense, all of it. That's why he's being sued in the first place for defamation. Anyways, everything that this dude says is intentionally set up to make himself the victim when he was just not and make Dominion the big, bad, evil company that's trying to take down a poor little innocent guy who didn't do anything to anybody. He's just hurting, or they're just hurting employees in the process. Just hurting employees. So anyways, somebody asks, like, living in his car broke? That's a good question, as a matter of fact. This is Mike Lindell in his car, seemingly selling pillows out of the trunk or slippers? I don't know. 
and we're still doing, we still have some of those all season slippers left at $25 a pair to thank all of you out there uh, for the great, uh, for supporting us, supporting us through all this. My employee. This guy is a mess, dude. We've lost all our box stores, our shopping channels. Uh, we get attacked every single day in my pillow. Whose fault do you think that is, Mike, for real? Not have to be attacked when they're protecting companies out there that we never heard the names of before, which I don't need to name all the voting machine companies. No, name them. Tell me. Who are you talking about there, Mike? Who is it? Give me the names. <laughs> God, dude. So anyways, yeah. Seems like he's selling slippers out the trunk of his car at the moment. In all seriousness, I don't think I, I don't think he's living in his car broke right now, but very possible that he will be by the end of this. I don't we're just gonna have to see how the lawsuit plays out, but it, it's not looking good for him at this moment. His lawyers dropped him. Oh, that's bad. So let's let's go through the trail of glowing decisions that this guy made to land him where he is right now financial decisions I, I don't want to talk about the defamation stuff i already you know i'll let the court establish defamation i feel it's already established but they have access to subpoenas and texts and stuff let's talk about the financial decisions that he made that may not have been the, the most wise in the moment early march 2023 you guys remember this one up here um i'm gonna tell you right now we're doing i've been working on it five months and we're doing a class action. You know, actually, I'm announcing it here. I announced it on my program. You know, well, get along. Like, come on. Tell us what it is. Frankspeech.com. Keep watching. <laughs> um, the, um, but it's a class action lawsuit against all machines and that they're defective devices. This guy's really filing lawsuits right now against machines? defective machines are you kidding me maybe some of that money could have been taken from this stupid frivolous suit that you filed and paid your defamation lawyers with it just throwing it out there what about this one mid-june 2023 check this out what we're doing with prank speech within the next couple weeks uh Look at this. Look at this ad along the side. Use promo code RSBN up to 66% off of everything. I know that putting out promos like this is really, really useful for companies to get their name out there and everything. That's fantastic. But 66% off. Why did he pick those numbers? People probably would have bought it if you marked it down 20% or 30% and then gave the, the promo person you know, an additional 10% or whatever of the commission, and you would have made a whole lot more money off of this promo stuff. That alone was a bad financial decision, right? Just the promos that he's doing were financially ridiculous. He put a promo on everybody, sponsored everybody from here to Texas, every neo-Nazi website or YouTuber or whatever had a Mike Lindell promo stuck to it every rumble page everything it all had mike lindell promos for 66 percent off of everything but in this video he's not just i mean it's not just about the fact that he's giving out ridiculous promo deals listen to what he says here four weeks we're offering a stock to the public this is going to be amazing we're offering stock to the public i want every person out there to have a little piece of the pie for our voice for this country 
I write with the money that I use to save this country that I've been out spending. I've spent over $40 million. Unbelievable. Hang on a second. He's okay. $40 million trying to fix the country. Are you kidding me? Fix the country, quote unquote. You spent $40 million on this. How? How could you have possibly? Where did all that money go? I'm sure I could scrounge up 40 people I know and we could all split all of that money and you would have saved all of that time and not found yourself in a defamation lawsuit. But no, guy wants to spend $40 million on ridiculous, what, like, I still have no clue what he spent $40 million on. Bad financial decisions. And what's more, this is what's known as a pump and dump scheme. He knows the stock is falling right now. He knows it's going to fail miserably. So he's trying to sell off as much stock as he possibly can to as many people as he can to pump it up. And then he pulls his stock out and then the stock plummets. So his stock price starts out at, I don't know, $5 a share. Say he's got 130,000 shares of this stock, right? And he sells 30,000 shares of it at $5 each. And now he's got, uh, I don't know, what, God, I didn't even do that. 150,000 more dollars or something like that. What's he worth? 650 million divided by $5 per share. So it would probably be 1.3 million shares. I mean, shares in a company can be divided up any way you want. I think you divide that up when you create the company. I don't even remember now. Anyways, he that's part of the scam is the point. He pulls his shares out, makes all of that money after the stock price goes from $5 to $20 when everybody buys in. And then it all kind of falls like that. He knows what he's doing. He knows the company's failing. He's trying to bail himself out desperately. And that is a kind of a scumbag move, right? Is it just me? dollars I've spent in a, uh, and uh, I need help. You know, we need help, but we need help making the voice bigger. And we need help, uh, the money that we've, and you'll see this when this happens. I can't tell the details. The lawyer said, I will only let you S tell this much. You know? SAC. Yeah, I will only let you tell this much, the lawyers. Well, got no lawyers to tell you what to do anymore now, do you, Mike? And then he continued on his spree of bad decisions, late March 2022. This live link up with these tech technology people. Technology people. And you can actually go and get it to, to individual states and get injunctions to basically shut down the machines to be used in the 2020 midterm elections and state elections, sir. Yeah, yeah, the 2022. No, no to literally all of that. None of that happened. That's correct, Steve. And in any elections, it would be over. Uh, we're going to get preliminary injunctions, and it's with no machines because they cannot do elections accurately, and they can and they can be manipulated 100%. But no, they were not manipulated. I mean, can they be? I suppose in theory, on an individual level, maybe. They're not connected to the Internet, so there isn't a single guy that's going to be able to do anything. They are not manipulated on a systemic scale to any degree at all. This is completely fabricated. But this is something that he just kept leaning into, kept leaning into. And what was he doing this whole time when he's hemorrhaging money? He was filing injunctions to prevent machines from being used. Really? You're being sued for a, mil uh, for a billion dollars, Mike. Not do elections accurately, and they can and they can be manipulated 100%. They say, you know, they did it. They're caught now. They're guilty. No. It's in violation of, fun, of fundamental rights to vote under 42-USC.
1983. I mean, all of this just made up. I mean, did he even like list a real code or it, it, did he just come up with numbers on the spot? I don't know. You got to check everything the dude says. See, 1983, a violation of equal protection and also due process. We are starting with seven states immediately. Um, we're going, we're going, we're going to get to every state and uh, every, of course, you're going to get pushback and stuff, but every state, every, the people, the, the, by the way, you know who the stand, who has the standing, all the voters, Steve, not just the commissioners and clerks. Right. So he doesn't have standing to bring this case because he was not injured. You have to be injured in a case like you have to have suffered some loss in the case to bring it like the woman who famously got burned by McDonald's coffee. McDonald's ran a phenomenal propaganda campaign against her because I sure thought that was a ridiculous case to bring. But in reality, McDonald's was keeping the coffee so ridiculously searingly hot because it would prevent it from, you know, they'd save money because the coffee wouldn't go bad as quickly. It was way hotter than it was supposed to be. I think it was like 200 degrees or something. That's near boiling point for water. And if you keep it hot longer, it stays better. So she gets her coffee, puts it in her lap, and she had to get skin grafts and everything when it spilled on her. For real. She was injured in that case. I, I mean, physically injured, but injury doesn't just mean physical injury. It can mean injured in any way, really. I cannot sue McDonald's because I didn't spill coffee on myself. That's what standing is. It prevents anybody from you know, suing when they're not like involved in the case in any way. And Mike Lindell doesn't have standing. He wasn't injured in any way. Like he's suing machine voting machines for like what exactly like this doesn't fit in the realm of a proper case at all. And if he had just spoken to a lawyer, he would know that lawyers have set this up. All of you out there are the plaintiffs. Anyway, it, just like everything that he said was completely fabricated. Did he even talk to any lawyers? I doubt it. He was laughed out of court multiple times. Told, you can't file this. You don't have standing for anything here. And the cases that he did file, why? You knew you were losing money like nobody's business, Mike. Why? I mean, th this is a direct result of his decisions over the course of seven years. Late June 2023, he's on Bannon again. By the way, people mentioning in chat, Bannon should be in prison. But of course, he's pardoned by Donald Trump, wasn't he? Is that what it was? I think he was pardoned by Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember now Bannon uh, scammed a bunch of people out of money in this We Build the Wall scheme. He took donations from people to build the border wall, and then he didn't, he just spent the money. It was wire fraud and everything, I think. And then Trump pardoned him, of course, at the end of his term. Just disgusting. Bannon should be in jail, but that's, you know, a story for another day. Correct? It, it's it's the plan to save our country. It really is, everybody. It's August 16th and 17th. Uh, this is the Election Crime Bureau Summit. The plan will be revealed and all this other stuff people are talking about. We got to do this in the elections and we got to do that. This plan has never been done before. It's never been even suggested before. So this is, I, I think, the last in a long line of, quote unquote, summits that Mike Lindell was setting up and events and conferences and all that other stuff. And I got to thinking, 
all of these supposed proofs, these summits and events that he threw, they're starting to make a lot more sense now. I'm starting to understand why the guy was doing that. You make money off of those types of events if you bring in enough people. You know, how much are you going to spend on a venue? Uh, $20,000, maybe spend some money on food, um, room blocks for the hotel and uh, an open bar and things like that. Make sure you've got seating and everything. I mean, I've set up an event before. It's kind of a nightmare, but maybe he spends a hundred grand on the event and he charges people $200 a ticket. He brings in a few thousand people I and mean, he's made his money back multiple times over already, right? I mean, what's uh, $200 times, say he brings in 1,500 people. I don't know. It's $300,000 he brings in over the course of a weekend. And then a hundred grand goes out to pay everybody for all the work that they did. So he just made 200000 off of ticket sales. Now it's starting to make sense. Now I'm starting to understand why he's doing all of these stupid conferences. And you, and when you get up on August 18th, you're going to wake up and go, this is the greatest thing ever. I don't care if you're a Democrat, Republican, or who you are, you're going to have so much hope. Election Crime Bureau. He set up a graphic that says Election Crime Bureau. I actually watched some of this on my Owen Unfiltered YouTube channel, if you want to see it. It's kind of entertaining, but absurd from top to bottom, all of it. And I, like I said, I'm hard-pressed to feel bad for the guy. Literally every piece of this is his fault. I don't want to see anybody selling slippers out the trunk of their car. That's really sad. But if it's going to happen to anybody, why not Mike? Let me know what you think in the comments. That's all I've got for you. If you like what I do and you want to see me continue to do it, don't forget to check me out on Patreon and take a look at my YouTube channels. Owen Morgan, where I talk about religious issues. Telltale Fireside Chat, where I talk about politics. Telltale Unfiltered, where I do long-form breakdowns of stuff like this. And Telltale Reads, where I read books by televangelists and others. I release everything in parts, but every part stands independently of the last. So you can jump in anywhere and I'll make sure it makes sense. You can find some ad-free, uncensored, complete versions of all my videos on my website, owenmorgan.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for my email list to get early access to everything. All links are in the description. Okay, thanks for watching, guys.